is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 227. My name is Brando, another Zoom episode as we continue to feel, feel our quarantine as I'm in, in uh, my apartment in Queens. Actually, tomorrow as I'm recording this, I will be in studio at Q104.3. I got to wake up at four in the morning and produce the morning show, but I got to wear a mask. It's like, it's really bare bones, uh, bare bones there. But in the meantime, still doing my podcast from, from home. And if you are listening on audio, I may encourage you to watch this on Zoom, not just because of our guests, but I'm showing I got merch finally. I have a brand, brand new, new, new t shirts. I got to get both of you guys, my guests, new t shirts, which you can get uh, on Redbubble. Um, they do all the work. So I get only a small percentage, but whatever. I, I don't care. It's not about the money. I just want to, you know, people have been asking for shirts for a long time. And uh, people have been asking for this episode for a long time as I smoothly segue into it to my guests. Uh, first up, let me just introduce, I guess, my co-host for today, friend of the show, uh, journalist Matt Wake. I, I love the Thin Lizzy hat. What's going on, buddy? Yeah. Good to see you, Brando. Good to see you, Doug. Me too, Matt. Always, always. I think this is the first time Matt and I, because we've done many a phone interview, but right. this might be the time first we get to see each other, which is... I like it. I mean, pre-pandemic, it's like... You know, uh, webcam didn't exist. Now this is how everything is, is working. And the reason I wanted Matt, I mean, obviously he's a very learned guy in, in rock and with Guns N' Roses. Uh, he had, it finally hit the, the interwebs. The print version came out for a while. The great article on Guitar World where he interviewed, uh, Roberta Freeman. And, uh, who else did you interview? It was about Live Era and it was about Spaghetti Incident. That's what you yeah, focused on. So I talked to Roberta Freeman, uh, talked with Gilby Clark. Yeah. And uh, talked with uh, Jim Mitchell, engineer. Ah, Jimmy, yeah. what a good guy, man. I love Jim Mitchell. Dude, he is the best to talk with. He is so gregarious. He's a sweetheart, man. Yeah, yeah. Jim Mitchell's the best. Yeah, he's a good dude. All right, I got to get him on this show. Yeah, he's a sweetheart, man. He loved me, Jim. He's a good guy. But you got great feedback, Matt, on that, that article, because a lot of fans were saying those are the albums that people usually, you know, everyone writes about Appetite. Everyone writes about the illusions and even Chinese people write articles. But um, obviously what we're doing today and what we did last time with Doug are, are focused on two maybe underappreciated records. So Spaghetti Incident was last time and this time Live Era. So today, I mean, obviously, you know who I'm, uh, the main guest is uh, for today. If you're watching on Zoom, Doug Goldstein, welcome back. Hey, good to be back, Randall. Thanks for having me, buddy. What is the... the um, the award or the placard, the GNR placard oh, or placards you have behind you. This is um, all of the records, kind of a combined sales. The uh, the one up up here that I'm pointing to. Uh huh. This looks to be. Um, let's see. Uh, I think it's a Use Your Illusion. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a Use Your Illusion one. I got a bunch of them. I, th- I don't know if I told you the story. I think I told you the story before, but um, I I had what 500 Golden Platinum records from all over the country, all over the world. And uh, when I moved to Hawaii, I had a guy look after the units for me. And I called for like three months. He wasn't answering the phone. So I sent another friend only to find out that 
the guy who was supposed to be watching my units was a heroin addict and he had sold everything I owned. Oh on- no. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, yeah. if they're on uh, eBay, they're probably Doug's. <laughs> yeah. That probably, yeah. Oh, well, that, that, that sucks. Um, before we get into the live era discussion, Doug, you brought up, and I'm glad you listened to, because I don't expect anyone to ever listen to my episodes. To me, I'm like talking into a tin can. So I'm always surprised when people respond. Uh, you listened to the Stone Gossard uh, interview with, with yeah. Pearl Jam, and yeah. I brought up to him what you told us. Yeah. And that was that they, that Axel wanted to tour with Pearl Jam and you too. And Stone's response was like, that's just a juicy rumor. I never heard anything about it. I would have done it. Right. So to, to you, uh, so what do you say to, to that? He validates my rendition of the story, which is I talked to the manager, Kelly Curtis, from a Quonset hut in Tel Aviv, Israel, when we were playing there. And I asked him to please pick up. He said, no, I'm busy. And I said, okay. I said, well, Axel's come up with this great idea, and I want to find out if you guys are into it. And he said, no. And I said, well, hang on a second. Don't you have a responsibility to talk to your band members? I said, when an idea comes in to me, I at least discuss it with the band. And he said, don't tell me how to do my fucking job. I'm hung up. So for, for Stone to not have heard about it, that, like I said, all that does is merely validate what I had said, which is uh, the manager didn't even discuss it with the band. And it's a bummer because he would have done it. Right. How massive would that have been? A Guns N' Roses U2 Pearl well, Jam uh, tour in 1993? Especially when Axel was saying, we'll open. Because Stone was saying, those are the two biggest bands in the world at the time. Right? And Axel, I mean, his point of, gee, I want to make it happen so bad, I'll open. You don't even mm. have to pay us. I just want it to happen. Wow. wow. That's so, just Wow. Yeah, well, managers, managers yet again can really fuck up the whole idea. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, not you, not you for me, <laughs> but uh, they'll get me started on, on managers and how they uh, they they block you from things. Uh, so today, thankfully, you know, because of you and your your kindness, we got to get to talk to you about Live Era. And Matt, I want to ask you something because you're a musician, and I'm not. And maybe I uh, should know anyway because I'm in radio. And this is, I guess, the primary question I got from listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Live Era. It's a live album, double album that came out in 1999. From uh, It's the best of 87 to 93. I had no idea, and I guess, Doug, if you can confirm this, that a lot of the tracks were re-recorded by Axel. That it wasn't, it was kind of live. Okay, so live in air quotes. Matt, did you, before Doug, I guess, respond, did you know that? Because I had no, I'm just, a, I guess, an idiot fan that I'm like, oh, it's a live album. It sounds great. I had so, no idea. So, yeah, that's great, uh, a great question uh, to get into. Um, I kind of floated that to Jim Mitchell because, as we all know, live albums in rock, how live is it? And I, I, yeah. as I recall Jim being, you know, he's a classy guy, and he's that's not his thing to say anything about that. So I think he kind of um, – he said, you know, as a, most of it or a lot of it, or it, he, he kind of in a classiest way possible wouldn't get into that, but I'm sure Doug knows the end. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it, basically all we were doing was calling up fixes. Um, it was the original recorded material, but Slash spent most of the time, uh, redubbing tracks. Um, and it wasn't like Slash is the most fallible guy in the band. He just is 
very um, concise and and, cons- and considers what the fans are going to listen to. And so if he had made any errors, um, then he would go back and redo uh, the tracks. Um, Axel did a couple of fixes, but from what I remember, it wasn't like, it certainly wasn't every track. Okay. Uh, and they were fixes as opposed to redoing the whole thing. Unlike, by the way, Live Like a Suicide, where you've got canned audience noise, which I just drives me crazy. That's it. Oh, so live because it was canned. So that's what also people were with thought about live era that they were canned yeah. audience or audiences. No, no, that was real audiences. Yeah, real audiences. So Matt, did you I'm even before? Fan, I'm not a fan of that. The contrivances. Yeah, right. Um, I never would have, and it wasn't my call at the time. I wasn't even around when Live Like a Suicide was released, right? But, um, but. Um, uh, yeah, so when I when I listen to it because I know it was canned, the the love like a suicide just drives me crazy. I mean, you can tell how funny it is now in retrospect. So it's interesting that you say Slash is a perfectionist because it seemed to be a lot of the questions uh, were focused on an Axel re-recording uh, Rocket Queen. So I guess with is there a reason why maybe like why wasn't it left with blemishes? Cause it's funny. Cause I, I mean, this is just uh written in, uh, in Wikipedia. So I, I'm sure it has a, it does have a citation that slash notes. The album is quote, not pretty. And there are a lot of mistakes, but this is guns and roses, not the, the fucking uh, Manavishnu orchestra. I had to pronounce that right. It's as honest as it's as honest as it gets, which I guess is not true. So that's, <laughs> well yeah i mean yeah i mean they look they didn't redo the entire record like i said there were fixes and and by the way that's and matt you can you can attest to this that's pretty common when somebody does a live record they just don't put it out live i mean they they go back and make sure that if there's some horrendous takes that or mistakes i guess that they fix them before release it wasn't that uncommon certainly not at the time it's not uncommon now either, and I'm mad. I'm sorry because because we at iHeart we have a lot of live performances. I mean, mainly yeah. before the pandemic and downstairs, so there would be mixes of the show, like rec release parties. So, I mean, yes, that is common, but it just seems um, I don't know um, what if they needed to be redone. If there was so much to choose from, why weren't like other performances chosen? I guess like why. And again, you, you nailed it in the head, though, Brando. There were so many choices that, uh, from tracks to uh, versions of tracks, that they found the ones with the least mistakes, and then Slash would go in and do his fixes. Um, Duff spent a little bit of time doing his fixes, and Axel did his fixes. But it wasn't, you know, again, like you said, they're picking the best, but what they went for um, wasn't necessarily the, the, the tracks with the fewest mistakes. They wanted to go for the best energy, right? Because that's what you want oh, to capture okay. inside of a live record is what tracks really put out the best energy. Matt, what were you going to say? I'm sorry I cut you off. Uh, to Doug's point, it, it would be the exception, not the rule for a band to put out a raw live thing. And, you know, uh, also uh, the second point Doug was making, the energy of the live era album it is one of the albums I love to put on if I'm driving yeah. a long trip. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of like caffeine. If you're lagging a little bit halfway, yeah. well, it, the energy is just killer. And actually, I hear, you know, I hear some, I, I'm sure they, they fix it. Because the general audience, beyond super fans or people connected with the band, a general audience who is what bands need to reach, especially of that magnitude, 
they need to hear stuff that's a little, even something raw. It needs to be of a certain refinement for, you know, some people like I love Keith Richards and I love the songs with the stones that he sings, but most people can't get into them because it's not as good as Mick Jagger sing. But, um, you know, I hear stuff on Live Era where, you know, it's not the best time I've ever heard Axel sing that riff or the cleanest I've ever heard Slash play guitar run, but the energy is there. The right. chaos and the badassery right. is there. That's right. Yeah, and, you know, it goes back to uh, what people would always ask me, you know, why do people come to the Guns N' Roses concerts? And you guys certainly heard me say this before, but it's NASCAR. Right. Nobody goes to see the race. They're all there for the wreck. Right? So, <laughs> um, you know, so you have to leave a couple wrecks in there, I guess, is my point. Right. Okay. At least a couple of fender benders. <laughs> and me as a just a general fan who's not a musician, I didn't notice. I mean, I didn't yeah. notice whatever. It's really funny that you say that, because I used to have this argument with the band all the time. Um, they would draw attention to a mistake they'd made uh, during a show. Right. Early in their career. Didn't happen much later because I was able to finally get it through. Guys, ninety nine point eight percent of your audience, they've never touched an instrument. So they don't know if something's fucked up unless you draw attention to it. That's Um, true. And so, uh, yeah, pretty much every man I've ever worked with, I've tried to get that across. It's like, guys, stop explaining. They didn't know you just made a mistake until you said, hey, I made a mistake. I fucked up. Right. Or you're pissed off about something. Don't draw attention to it. I learned that in radio too. When I would make mistakes on air, just don't call attention to it. Right, just, yeah. just let it, let it out, there, let it bleed to, right. to keep with the stones, uh, the stones That's theme. Right. How did the, how are the songs chosen? How how are the the, the track list uh, picked? Like how do they go? Because there's a lot of things to to kind of pick apart there. Whether with the, how the band was or wasn't at the time. Uh, I've gotten some questions about 14 years because that's obviously primarily uh, an Izzy song. Why yeah. was that there? Uh, yeah. It's all right. The uh, the Black Sabbath cover, yeah. which I didn't know was a cover until yeah. after. Yeah. So so how were the songs chosen? And I guess who was in on the, that decision since the band was, you know, kind of fractured fragmented. or was it different? Fragmented. Fragmented. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, from, from my remembrance, Brando, they, they, they were communicating, um, through the studio about the tracks that they were interested in. So like they would tell Jim Mitchell, right. To your point, Matt. Um, and, and they actually, you know, they didn't work at the same time in this video, right. Cause they weren't communicating with each other, not person to person. There was no dyadic communication. Um, so everything was kind of done through the studio or through me, um, you know, and I would, uh, uh I would communicate either to Slash or Duff directly or to the representatives. Cause even I wasn't that close with the guys at that point. Mm. Okay. Uh, I'll give this, uh, cause I want to start giving people credit for these questions. Doug, I mean, just for, without just people uh, wanting to know about it, people are just excited to hear from you. You know, you, you, have- oh, thank you. Always comments of you're one of my favorite uh, guests, not just for me, but for my listeners. Well, hopefully, uh, I, hopefully I try. I mean, I try. You know, at 59, it's tough to remember everything. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do the best I can. And, and you know how, Brenda, we talk about it off camera all the time, is I f- have always felt that without fans, there's no band. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm always trying to um, shed light on 
information that the, otherwise the fans wouldn't have. I just think it's important that they do know. Agreed. Without listeners, there's no podcast for radio. Without readers, there's no, you know, uh, rock magazines. Yeah. Uh, so this is from uh, Thomas Aragon. Uh, how come uh, the decision to uh, what were you planning? Because you wrote like a bunch of questions. Yeah. Were you planning the bonus tracks like Homa? Like why was that on only the Japanese version and not on the worldwide version? Yeah, Japan always asks for additional tracks um, because their albums are more expensive. And so that's how you stop imports um, in Japan from either wow. the US, UK or somewhere else um, because they're, you know, about twice as expensive to buy product there. Um, so uh, you always give the Japanese audience a couple of bonus tracks. It, it allows the record company in Japan to sell their product, oddly enough. So, yeah, but that's a great question because, you know, if you're not, if you don't do what I do for a living, how would you know? <laughs> exactly. I, Matt, did you know that? I had no idea. I had no idea. That's a, a great nugget. And you always, because Japanese imports, uh, you know, whether it's a band like uh, Guns N' Roses, or I know Van Halen had some uh, yeah. that highly sought after Japanese stuff. Um, that's a cool nugget, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stick around, Matt. I'm full of them. And, and, <laughs> Brandon would say I'm full of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you slap on the longest song, too. So it's not like you're just... You know, throwing yeah. on, uh, you know, a uh, corn shucker or some like, you know, yeah. little, little ditty. Yeah. Um, so this is from a, a loyal listener, Satya. What was the Axel's reaction to, I guess some CDs were mislabeled and I guess some had like a, maybe an error with Paradise City. I had, they, mine weren't, but I got enough of that question that there were some uh, typos in yeah, the, know, the, the that was brought to our attention, quite honestly. All <laughs> right. Know. First time I've heard of it, but again, being 59, maybe I just forgot. <laughs> I messed up with my breakfast cereal somewhere. <laughs> um, this also, I got a lot uh, of questions. I'll give it to uh, credit to Tommy Frazier. Did Robin Fink, because he was in the band at the time, uh, re-record vocals on Mr. Brownstone? Were any of the current members at, in 1999 involved? Not to my knowledge, but again, I don't, re I don't specifically remember. As we've talked about, Brando, a lot of the stuff that happened in the studio, um, I never, right. what are you going to do, tell Guns N' Roses what to play in the studio? <laughs> so unless they asked me to come down um, to kind of share, and that's really all they were ever asking me to do, was to come down and share as opposed to come down and share my opinion, right? My opinion was never really asked for in the studio, nor would I ever want to give it because – you know, I think they were doing okay without my input prior to me being there. So, <laughs> um, but uh, the one thing that, that should be said hasn't been asked and I'm probably will be, but how did we decide to do that record? Right. right. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what it came down to literally was um, every single month uh, I'd have to have a meeting with Jimmy Iveen, uh once Geffen was sold to the Interscope A&M uh, uh, grouping. And Jimmy would just rip my ass about why he didn't have a Chinese democracy record. And so uh, he came to me and said, look, you need to give me something, right? Something. And so I arranged where the live record counted against our album commitment. And it also put something out that, uh, that the label would be able to um, take a look at. And I'm a huge fan of live albums, a huge fan. And being a huge fan of Guns N' Roses, I thought this is perfect. It's, it fills the space. It counts against the album commitment. So it gets us out of our deal sooner. Um, and I had renegotiated the contract where they were making a boatload of money. So why not? Mm. 
I, I also got the, that question. I wanted to if I'd see if I could find it, but uh, people were asking, was it a uh, a label con- contract agreement kind of thing? So it wasn't a contract of- agreement. It's literally something that I came up with to try and appease uh, Jimmy Iovine from how angry he would be every time I had a meeting with him. <laughs> He'd have this running total, right, of how much we've spent uh, up to that point. So. What was, I guess, Axel's reaction to that? Because he was, and, and I understand, very focused on promoting and rebuilding this new version. But to go back and kind of highlight what the band was, was there any sort of pushback? No, not at all. He actually liked the idea because he could breathe. Um, it, it, he felt like it bought him more time um, to make the Chinese democracy record. So, um no, there was no pushback on his part at all. There was no pushback on anybody's part. They all, they, they're like me, they're, they're rock fans. And so, you know, the, the ability to put something out live, uh, everybody seemed to be into at the time. Okay. Uh, Slash was a huge fan of the Aerosmith live bootleg. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Matt. Yeah. Right on. Uh, this question is from uh, Carlos Velasquez. Were there songs, that, I, and I know you, you just kind of uh, reiterated the point, Doug, where you know you're not making the decisions for them and but you are there and you are still you know looking over and, and maybe you could say something not as like hey you should do this but like hey why don't you think about this right. were there songs that you wanted included on on a record because i got a lot of uh you know i heard bad apples was considered why not civil war why not live and let die so was there any songs on there that you wanted Maybe they were left in the cutting room floor? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's a pretty good representation of the band's body of work at the point, at that point. Um, you know, when you look at the Use Your Illusion thing, what is it, 34 songs? Right? Yeah. <laughs> How do you pick, right? Um, so, yeah, no, I don't think so. And, and again, what I, you know, what my role always was is you tell me what it is that I'm marketing and I'll market it. I never really... Uh, with the exception of the Lies record, and I talked to you about that ad nauseum, Brando, my input, and how that happened. And there were two songs that I actually picked for that that particular project. Right. Uh, what was it? Um, Nazareth. Hair the dog. Hair the dog. On, uh, on, yeah, spaghetti incident. It was it was Nazareth, Nazareth and uh, the first track, right? Um, since don't have me. Or since I yeah, don't have you, right? Yeah, yeah I kind of remember things. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm not as old as you, but my memory is probably right. just as bad. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. Because uh, do you remember before I, it escapes me what songs? Because again, we have it's such a nerd fan base, which is why everyone loves you because you had to answer all these nerd questions to the best of your ability. What songs were tweaked? I don't. No, I don't. Again, not being present inside of the studio, I wouldn't know. No, Matt, maybe uh, when you were talking to everybody, maybe you found out. So I, I went back and found my transcript with Jim. Yeah. And uh, his statement, and this didn't go into the story, but, uh, oh, you know, I'm not 100% sure of what was done in the mix process or the fixing process. And then a little bit long down, he goes, Axel was kind of mentoring that. And Del James, and I think they're moving along. And then uh, he was working more with Slash with Snake Pit at that time a little bit. And he said, and, and while he doesn't have details on the fixes, uh, he, he, Jim's kind of end comment on that was, I think they were looking for songs that not only had great performances from Axel, but by all the members so that they could avoid 
trying to go back and getting everybody to replace their parts. He didn't say it, but, you know, they're kind of different camps at that time and might be more complicated to uh, orchestrate that. Right. And, you know, it's it's an interesting point, too, Matt, is because, I mean, people, they forget that or maybe they just don't know. But um, most of the band members, uh, Sans Axel, from the time they woke up to the time they passed out, they were drinking heavily, right, mm-hmm. and drugging heavily. And so the, the performances couldn't be that good. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, uh, I can remember actually uh, having um, someone, I'll leave it at that, someone's tracks in the band um, uh, just hand me those, I told the sound engineer. And I played them for this particular band member. And I said, this is what you're giving the fans for their, for their money. And it sobered this person up for about two weeks. <laughs> so and then they went back to what they were doing. But uh, my point is, they were so wasted that they didn't realize how much it was affecting their live performances. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd have to go based upon the energy um, and then do the fixes based upon whatever energy was there, because you're not going to recreate that energy. That's it's true. Like bottle. It's not going to happen, right? So, And I totally feel what Matt uh, started off by saying, that it's the ultimate driving album. You know, I, I, I've listened to it more than I actually never bought the greatest hits. I mean, it's the live era was my greatest hits. Yeah, right. That, that, that's how I felt about it. Uh, this is from Matt Gordon. Because there were a lot of... Songs from uh, Tokyo 92 that, that they were on there a few times, yeah. but were performances like Wembley 91 or, or Paris 92 were others considered? Do you know about that? I don't, but uh, the one common thread in what you said was the quality of the recording that was being done. Mm. Um, the three shows that you just mentioned were all being professionally recorded. Um, so there's a lot less to fix um, when you have that situation. And in, and in all three of those situations, you had audience mics all over the stadium. So thus the not having the, the necessity to create crowd noise, right? It was, it was organically recorded. In this, I, I can't, I'm not sure, I can't confirm it, but I got enough of these questions because my live era CD, one of my friends has it and hasn't given it back. Uh, but Matt and I guess Gilby were listed as additional musicians and not band members. I don't know. Oh, uh, so yeah. you, you yeah. So Matt, can you elaborate on that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like in the liner notes, you know, it, where it says slash guitars. Yeah. Uh, like and like, kind of under the the classic uh, quin, quintet Izzy Adler. It says additional musicians. Uh, um, Gilby Clark, and I think it even says percussion for Matt Sorum. Wow. Uh, um, but uh, I asked Gilby about that for the story and uh, for Guitar World, and he was like, you know, now looking at that, it's kind of funny. At the time, it wasn't that funny, is how he kind of put it, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, to be honest with you, I don't think it's that funny at all. <laughs> it's, um, I, I can understand the derivation of it, which is that they never were quote-unquote, partners in the band, but for fuck's sake. I mean, you're a band member, right? I mean, they were both in the band for two-plus years. Matt, longer than that. A lot longer than that. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a slap in the face. I don't think that's cool, you know? I, and I I don't think I was aware of it, but... Okay. 
Because I certainly would have raised it as an issue. I don't go through liner notes. I mean, I've never, you know, that's not part of what I do. Yeah, that was something I did, I think, when I was really younger. Uh, and I know that, you know, maybe I don't want to lose any cool points, but Matt, I think you do that all the time with your record collection. I was just never a liner notes person. So that's something else that, uh, that went over my head. Um, yeah, I'm not cool, but that's something I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes you more learned, you know, and that's why I, I'm, I'm grateful. I have such a, you know, a wonderful audience that helps me kind of produce these episodes and ask questions that I wouldn't even get to. But that made me, me think, and I, I said this to Gilby when I had him on, and I've said this to listeners and it's, it's been a debate. I feel Gilby should have been inducted. Oh, yeah. He, what a man he was to still, to go there and perform and, and, you know, kind of be side stage while the rest are, are receiving. It. And I don't think it takes away from anybody else. It's not inducting Gilby doesn't say he wrote sweet child of mine. It's just, he is part of the legacy. So I'm just curious uh, while we're talking about Gilby, your, your thoughts on that. Um, I mean, I'm going to defer to Doug first on that. He's yeah, no, <laughs> no, you, Doug, as somebody who, who worked with him, because it bothers me that, you know, people could say he was, you know, a hired gun, and I know, or an additional musician, whatever, but I don't think anybody, he, he was the right person to be on that tour, and that's a big chunk of his life, and still is. How yeah. is that not included in the legacy that yeah, is GNR. I don't, I, don't disagree, I don't disagree with you at all. Obviously, nobody was consulting me for for, for who who stood right. on the stage at the induction at that point. But yeah, no, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, it's like Matt Sorum um, never being considered a partner in the band. He was there a lot, and he used to bring this point up to me all the time. I have officially been in the band longer than Steven Adler. What the fuck? It's <laughs> like you know what? He had a very valid point. Um, I was given my directive um, by the band members as to what they did and didn't want um, to transpire in all those relationships. And so, um, you know, where, uh, you know, I, I was paid uh, handsomely, by the way, I was paid to be the jerk. Right. So it allowed the chemistry of the band to always stay intact or not always, but for the most part, stay intact. Um, so that was kind of my role. I didn't really bother being the bad guy. Um, but, uh, but certain things like, like, you know, the way that Matt was treated, I thought was a little unfair. And Gail, being to, to, the, to your point, um, huh? I wasn't even aware of that. I mean, I didn't follow any of the Hall of Fame induction stuff. Um, so I wasn't aware. That he, was he actually there and, and they didn't bring him in? Yeah. yeah he, he, um, that's messed up. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Matt. Uh, well, Gilby's all class, you know. You, yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were talking about Live Era and his credit as additional musician. He played guitar on 16 of the 22 tracks. Yeah, right. And he's an additional musician. Yeah, right. He played yeah. on, he was the guitar player for m- most of, you know, one of the greatest, longest tours in rock history, Use yeah. Your Illusion. Yeah. Um, yes, he should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, like uh, some of the random people, but the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there are all, there's a lot of political weirdo stuff and hard rock and metal gets uh, discounted, whereas you look yeah. at Red Hot Chili Peppers, the guy who was in there, you know, just for a few years, uh, Josh Klinghoffer, a guitar player who yeah. replaced Prashante, yeah. out of years for, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right, yeah. So President I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, he's a nice he guy. There. You know, uh, 
you know, all the guys in Kiss besides the original members that aren't right. in. Um, there's some uh, political and, uh, you know, it's a judgment thing in hard rock and metal. We all know how that is discounted in the rock hall. Yeah. 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 So the one thing, the one the one thing I have to say is Gilby still believes that Axel was the bad guy who threw him out of the band. And all I can say is Axel from the beginning of Gilby being hired said, once the tour is over, guys, that's it for Gilby because I want to take this in a different direction. And they all knew it, yet particularly Slash and to a great extent Duff as well, we're telling Gilby, we're going to keep you around. We're going to keep you around. We're going to keep you around. And, and Axel stayed consistent. I've always said, it's once it's over, it's over. And so uh, it was pretty unfair to Axel that he took the heat for, you know, shit canning uh, Gilby when that really wasn't the case at all. I mean, it was more, um, and maybe it's, you know, they just wanted to, to, maybe they really wanted Gilby to stay in the band, but they certainly weren't very vocal about it to Axel at all. Oh. Mm. Um, they didn't put it this way. They didn't stick up for Gilby when it came time for Axel to say that. So that's it. We got to go in a different direction. There was no conversation about, but wait, we love him and he's got to be here. None of that. Mm. that. I mean, I guess, cause maybe it was, that was all agreed upon at the beginning, but when you're on that kind of tour, I mean, I can't imagine the brotherhood that's established, you know, and saying goodbye to a friend. Right. So all the explosions that are going on around you, you tend to stay close to the people that you love and know. Sure, sure. Um, and speaking of the different direction that you know Axel is taking the band, this is a question from a, another loyal listener, uh, Anderson. Um, and you kind of alluded, I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but why you, obviously they were asking for Chinese democracy for a while, mm-hmm. but how come this wasn't released or something wasn't released earlier in 1999? Why wasn't something released in the mid-90s to pacify the, the label? I think we all felt that Axel would have another project done. And so anything that would be taking his time away from uh, closure on that, none of us knew it was going to take 10 years. I mean, we had no idea. So it really didn't come up until 99 when, as I said, you know, Jimmy, I've been saying, this is crazy. I need something. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I just want to uh, establish, I don't know if we're ever going to do a, a Chinese democracy uh, episode. Maybe not until like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's too a uh, sore subject or it's yeah. just a, fair enough, fair enough. Well, no, I mean, for me, look, I, there's not much I can talk about with it. It's, um, you know, sh- just this side of, you know, facilitating a chicken coop for, for Buckethead to play his leads in. Other than that, you know, I, I really wasn't all that involved in it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man, I love Buckethead. Sorry. I, <laughs> I still love the fact that the only interview he's done was with his uh, therapists. I, I still think yeah. it's brilliant. I love the chicken coop story. That's a great one. The- oh, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, the best part of it is when you actually walk into the studio and see it. You're like, Wait a second! This is really a chicken coop, right? It's a man-sized chicken coop, albeit, but it's a it's a chicken coop all the way, complete with the wire and the and the. I mean, it's, fuck! I was cracking up when I walked in. Did you have to hire people to tend to the chickens, or Buckethead did that himself? I never saw any chickens in there. It was only for Buckethead to be in. Okay, I thought there were also chickens in there. So okay, That's, yeah, yeah. One wow. of the things that he was cooped up, I guess. <laughs> Love it. 
Yeah. Uh, the, to go back to live era, uh, what is your personal favorite on the on the album, Doug? I, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I love uh, the raw. I always uh, there's two different projects, right? Um, there's Appetite, which is really raw, in your face, up front, and then Use Your Illusion takes you in a completely different vein. Um, it, it's almost the evolution in a short term basis of a Beatles project, right? Where you've got Meet the Beatles turns into Sgt. Pepper's at some point. And so, and I've, I've argued often that that's one of the biggest reasons why there was a breakup is, is, uh, for Slash, he wishes that every record was ACDC. Um, it stays the same every record to every record and Axel wanted to constantly evolutionize. Um, so I would probably think that the, uh, the original appetite stuff is probably my favorite stuff on that, on the live era stuff. Cool. Uh, and, and, and again, some of the, I mean, you know, unusual illusion, we toured for three months without ever anybody ever having heard a track. Mm. Um, oh, then you could be mine, right? but, um, they didn't come out until we were already on the road. I saw the the one uh, stop on the Illusions tour. I saw I saw at the Birmingham Race Course. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. I think it was the one before St. Louis, but uh, it was in this uh, uh, dog track. That's Huge, right. Giant, yeah. Muddy as heck. People losing their shoes. And that's right. But uh, that was what was thrilling. I had a girlfriend at the time, or an ex girlfriend, who had given me a bootleg cassette right. that had some of the demos that ended up being November rain and stuff like that. So I had, I hadn't knew that, but it was so thrilling and daring for a mega band like that to go out there and for 60,000 people, 70,000 people play, you know, like, you know, they were opening with like a new song. They were, um, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like um, that was really thrilling. And the other thing that I think is important about live era, and then I'll give you my favorite live era song yeah. uh, is if you saw any of those shows, it was, te- you know, this, St. Louis is famous for the chaos going all the way. But, uh, it, you know, the one I saw, it was teetering on that. It was oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely from going wild into crazy town. Absolutely. People but used that, to-, but to, to your, your NASCAR comparison, I mean, the danger and the edge, like there have been some good rock bands after Guns N' Roses. Yeah. But never the danger with. I don't think there's been a band that has the songs and the charisma, but also has the danger. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. It's literally become dangerous. Oh yeah. Not a fabricated danger. I think that's what's today. It's like, oh, we're dangerous. Don't tell me you're dangerous. Just be dangerous if you're actually dangerous. Well, to Matt's point, people talk about the Montreal and St. Louis riots. What they don't talk about is I was literally calling us the CNN band. Every <laughs> single night we were on CNN for something, right? I'd go back to my hotel room. I'm going to turn on CNN and see what we're famous for tonight. It wasn't just the riots. It was the almost riots all the time, right? Hmm. All the time. So my favorite track on Latvia era uh, – the, they do the slow, bluesy version of "You're Crazy" from yeah. uh, Lies, but they do it electric, and mm-hmm. it is just so uh, low down attitude, punk meets blues. Uh, and I also love you guys mentioned the uh, "It's All Right." Uh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, because that I didn't know that song before then. 
Yeah, uh, me neither. And it's a cool moment, cool song. Uh, like just like they would do with uh, spaghetti, turning people back onto things they might have heard. You know, mm-hmm. people went back and heard this. You know, it's Bill Ward singing the Sabbath version, not Ozzy, which is right. But uh, so those those are the two that stick out for me. Yeah, right on. And, and just for me, not if anyone cares, uh, I, I still love the the opening uh, with McBob with Night Train. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> You one of the best. Well, they didn't fucking make it. That's, <laughs> that's what you get. I mean, that that's just great. And I and I moved to the city. I mean, that just takes you to another place. You know, with the uh, the orchestral, you know, the horn section and everything. It's just uh, it's incredible. Give me but some reggae. I, say that again, Matt. That's the one where he goes, "Give me some reggae," and they like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, like a reggae vamp on it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the band. You know, those those little things uh, I love, and and also keeping it. I think it was before. Maybe it's so easy when they kept in. I really love that they kept it in with Axel telling the crowd to kind of move back because people yeah. get smashed in front. What decisions went into that to keep in the kind of the banter with the fans and not just keep it as a straight you know song, song, song? But there was you know some banter. You know, even like with Rock and Queen, hey, you can dance to this shit, you know. That's just that's just the actual man. I mean, sometimes we used to call it being Twain because Mark Twain was a great storyteller. So amongst everybody in the band entourage, except Axel, knew that when he started talking, uh oh, here we go, we're being Twain again, right? <laughs> the great storyteller, here he goes, right? And nobody knew what he was gonna say. We had no control over what he was gonna say. We all just sat there going, shit, I hope he doesn't say the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Good thing there wasn't, uh, you know, Twitter or cell phones back then. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think we all probably would have been in trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's cool. I kind of got this because I, I obviously I have the posts left up on my Facebook and Twitter about you coming on and questions. So this is a question in real time. So it's like yeah. live radio. Uh, this is from Sal. Uh, can you have him address the silly theory? that the skipping and repeating of Las Vegas at the end of uh, Paradise City was a hint that the new band would be playing Vegas for their first shows? No, not a chance. <laughs> never happened. Wow, I never even heard that theory. That's some uh, yeah. tinfoil well, hat stuff. <laughs> I, I, booked, <laughs> no I booked the Vegas runs, um, and that, that, I mean, that wasn't even a thought at that point. Yeah. I didn't even started my conversations at that point. Yeah, wow, that's... I think that's when you don't get a lot of material from a band. You start looking at theories and hints. Right, absolutely. (laughs) I guess. If you play it backwards. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. You play it. My third grade teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Matt, let me uh, finish a little, because I know you you both are busy, and I appreciate your your time. Uh, I don't want to forget, because if you want to read more about that, that gig, that Alabama gig that you were just talking about, is that still up on uh, AL.com? Yeah, yeah. I, I have a pretty good history of that uh, 91 show at the dog track, which it, it, for people that were there, they either say it's the best show they ever saw or it was the worst show, which to me is uh, uh, what I want from a rock and roll band. Yeah, and by the way, Matt, that's the uh, that's the gig that I bought a uh, – a four-wheel doom buggy, one-man doom buggy for Axel, and had it delivered to the racetrack. And he rode it. He rode it around all day. That is awesome! Wow, yeah. great detail. I remember the old Honda Odyssey, the uh, the four-wheel drive. The it's a it's a little one-man uh, uh, doom buggy. That's great. Yeah, last man, you know, it's better than uh, 
than when uh, uh, the Cheap Trick guys came to the concert in Rock, uh, Rockford, Illinois, and uh, Rick gave Axel a hand grenade. I thought this is a lot safer than giving Max Rosa a hand grenade. I just pulled the pin while you're at it. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, and Matt, any uh, any articles we should be on the lookout for? Anything? What do you have uh, coming down the pike? Yeah, I got my first uh, story for Spin coming out. It's about uh, what's the financial impact uh, for bands that get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, not so much like the Springsteens or Stones or even GNRs, but some of the bands that are great but maybe not quite that big. What do they get out of it besides a stir- statue that weighs like? 13 pounds and a Wikipedia update. What do they get? So look for that on Spin. It's cool. interesting because I, I was even thinking about that with with Gilby because if he just had Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, you know, that could help him, you know, maybe sell more tickets or do more shows. That's just like something else you can put on a billboard when he's uh, he's touring. And I also don't want to forget, as of today, he has a brand new song out with uh, with Nikki Six and oh, yeah. uh, Stephen yeah. Perkins. So uh, that that's pretty cool. Tightwad, that's the name of uh, uh, Gilby. And and Doug, um, I know you're a lot of things are our secret behind the scenes. But is there anything you can tell us about uh, publicly that we can look forward to? No, not really. I'm working with a couple okay. bands. Um, right. with a couple bands, but as they start to come to fruition, then I'll certainly talk about that. One of them, oddly enough, is uh, Priscilla Presley's son. Uh, oh. Really good. I mean, really good band, band. Really good band. Uh, and I and I also heard uh, there's um, there's a band with uh, Slash's son playing drums, Wyland's son doing vocals, and uh, Trujillo's kid on bass. Um, they just started this band last week, um, and somebody that I know is that um, who it is? got a video of it, and it's pretty damn good. <laughs> Not that bad is, lineage either, by the way. That actually reminds me because I'm still friends with. Oh, where is he? Oh yeah, Nicola. Uh, yeah, Nick uh, Sangaris. Because I had Nick and London on uh, a couple yeah. years ago. Okay. With, with that band, Classless Act. And but, however, so yeah, Suspect Two O Eight. I had no idea that there was Wyland's kid also because I'm where Nicholas and I uh, follow each other on oh, on cool. Instagram. London and I did at one point, but maybe he was right. told not to follow me. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Yeah, that's like when they when this person sent me the videos. They said, you know, you should manage them. I go, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. When I still can't that, that I'm I know. working with this kid. <laughs> I know. I still can't believe I got London on the show with Slash's permission. I don't know if that'll happen now, but uh, yeah. So suspect uh, two oh eight uh, underscore if you want to follow them on Instagram. Yeah, brand okay. new. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Really good though. Really good from what I heard. Really good. What, it's cool though that I think for fans to know that you're working with bands, even though we don't have like specific, like overly, you know, detailed information yet. But the fact that you're getting back in the music game, I think is just, is exciting for fans just in okay. general. It's exciting for me. I mean, it's certainly what I know, right? So it's, uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I love music. I don't care what I do or don't make. Um, I just love music. So it's been a lot of fun. Right. And so this episode has been a lot of fun. You know, Matt, you know, it's always a pleasure to have you on to help me, you know, go along this podcast night train to help me guide me and you know with all your the information that you have and uh you know i, I congratulations on spin i mean yeah that's huge matt way to go thanks you i appreciate it and uh right back at you brando love r- rapping with you chatting with you and uh before i know doug 
is before he goes up, wanted to make sure I told him, uh, beyond being a journalist and Guns N' Roses, a band I love to write about, uh, as a fan, uh, they were the band that made me love rock and roll. And thank you for your part in bringing Guns N' Roses thank you, to the people. And, uh, because it, it's not a band if the people don't hear it, if they don't reach people. So thank you for your role in Guns N' Roses. Thank you, Matt. It means a lot to me. Thank you very much. Yeah. And my my sentiments exactly, and and Doug just to piggyback that. Just thank you again for your time and Always, your man. friendship. I know it still it yeah. still makes me laugh when you uh, woke me up at like nine in the morning, which isn't that early, to talk about Limp Biscuit. You know, yeah, right. why does everyone hate Limp Biscuit? Huh? Who is this? <laughs> it's Doug. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand. I mean, look, I you know, it's anyway that's a whole other story yeah sure sure get me and fred on sometime oh god that would be crazy oh and i'll just say this you can just you know do like a a zip thing and just make no mention people are like why don't you try to get him and alan on the same episode (laughs) i think probably not (laughs) probably not i yeah and the audience should know this i've made uh efforts um to want to reach out to him and talk to him, it's the ball's in his court, and he he doesn't he won't he, he doesn't want to. So you can't you know you can lead a horse to water, right? Sure, sure. And uh, you know both of you have been very nice to me. Uh, so I kind of just step back and be like, whatever happened. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but as long as people were nice to me, that's right. You're, you're, you're cool by my book. So both of you have been very nice to me. <laughs> and I got to get you uh, both of you as I plug myself again. Which sounds weird out of context. You have to, you know, get some T-shirts. Redbubble. There's also uh, somebody bought a, a sweatshirt the other day. There's stickers on there. So, you know, without listeners, without guests, you know, what, what am I doing? You know, I'm at home playing with cats. You know, by myself. Uh, so, thank you both. Uh, this concludes episode 227 of Appetite for Distortion. When will you see the next episode? Well, the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. Uh, you'll see it. I don't know if soon is the word. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. <laughs>